Thank you for listening to a Quiet Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. We want to be popular in this world, or at least even well accepted in this world, and not a peculiar people. We will have to stay away from supernatural things. But if we're going to engage this world with the gospel of Jesus, it is to invite shame from them. It's to invite into our life. If, if you can't stand the thought of being criticized or offended by somebody, well, then the gospel is going to bring you shame. The gospel will bring shame in a world who rejects supernaturalism. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. It remains folly to this day. Paul is charging us to not be ashamed of this gospel because to bring it to a lost and dying world is to open yourself up to criticism, to ridicule, to not being popular, to having people look at you in the face and laugh, to having academics all across this land, people on the TV, people on the internet, politicians, pundits everywhere, mocking you for your belief in God. Shame comes in a world that rejects supernaturalism. And, and here's the reality, is that the way the Bible presents humanity is radically different than how the world and, and humanistic views, humanism views humanity. The world says humans are good. The Bible says humans are evil. And if we just think about this just for a little bit, I think we'll, we will see why Paul had to say, I will not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the temptation is there to be ashamed. In our world today, just, okay, just the words, you are a sinner who needs to be saved. Think about this with me. Where on earth are people in America right now, your neighbors, your friends, where are they hearing that? They're not. They're not hearing that. You know, it may have been a day like generations past where people made fun of people all the time, and certainly there are bullies still today. I get that. But the message that most children from the very early stages of life right now receive and that we are inundated with is that we are amazing. You're awesome. You can do it. You are the center of the universe. If people in the, are in the way of your life, then move them out of the way. Get them out of the way. You do your thing. You do you. And the gospel of Jesus is to, if we're going to preach the gospel of Jesus and tell our friends and neighbors, we're going to invite ourselves into, if we're scared of this, we're going to invite ourselves into shame. It's going to be hard. Because we're coming with a message that nobody else is talking about. It tells humanity, the gospel of Jesus, that Paul's not ashamed of. It tells, to, it tells humanity, okay, you are wrong. You're wrong. The way you're living, the way you're existing apart from God and on your own, you're doing it wrongly. And we live in an affirmation world. It's beyond a tolerance world. You can affirm everyone except the people who aren't affirming everyone. And Christianity comes and says we will not affirm anybody. Okay? To Christians, we will affirm that God's grace is upon you and his love is there for you. And we'll tell non-believers that God loves you. But we will not affirm the way you are and the way you're living. 
We want to plead with you to repent. It brings shame from the world to us. Humanity doesn't like that. Non-believers don't like hearing, you're a sinner and you need to repent. Do you understand what I'm saying? Therefore, the truth will be shamed because people want to live the way they want to live. Melissa McCarthy was right up here. Do you remember that? You know, Melissa McCarthy, the girl from Gossip Girl? Not Gossip Girl. What is it? Gilmore Girls. Not that I've ever seen Gilmore Girls. But she's in that, and she's in a bunch of other movies. She just spoke up here at this uh, commencement speech. She's an honorary doctorate now. And in that speech, she said, surround yourself with people who, can, who will tell you that you can. Surround yourself with people who will tell you you can. We've already heard that we need encouragement. Last week we heard that. Okay, we need encouragement. But that message is the message that is it's indicative of, of what everybody is. Just find yourself, whatever you want to do, find people will tell you you can do that. You can do that. And for Christians in the world, and you can find out why there's so much tension in our world today, because Christians are saying you can't. You can't do that. And for the sake of your soul, man, woman, boy, girl, please stop that. Please turn. Please turn to Christ. Please repent of your sins. Please see that you're breaking God's law. And through tears that come down our cheek, we plead with them. You're doing it wrongly. And you will go to hell. This will not go well from you. You will hurt people around you. I will not tell you. You just can. The gospel has people, in fact, this, this humanistic, because... Uh, unfortunately, um, there has been a humanistic gospel preaching that's been adopted by the church. And in large part, the gospel of Jesus goes like this, and I've been guilty of it. God will affirm you. If you'll just, God is, nobody else will affirm you, God will. And we have people all over this land saying, well, God knows my heart. He knows my heart, so I'm going to keep living this way and doing what I want to do, and God knows my heart. He loves me, he wouldn't judge me. And so often the message that's even proclaimed in the world is this, this message is completely different than the message of the gospel. Because the message of the gospel we've seen for the last few months I've been mentioning is you have to die to yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. And there is increased hatred, it seems to me, against God and his word publicly. We live in a critical, critical Time, I believe, in American history. A critical time. And Jesus said about this gospel message, they hated me, they will hate you. And if we want to be loved, if we don't want shame to come our way, if, we're not, if we don't have the backbone for it, then we will just adopt and baptize humanism and materialism and kind of baptize Christianity into that and come out with a version that's not the gospel at all, that won't bring shame. Because it just says to everybody, you're good. God loves you as you are. Just come as you are in a different way than Billy Graham said it. And God will affirm you. God will love you. God loves you after all. He's crazy about you. He just is giddy thinking about you all day. He's just twiddling his thumbs, just longing to have this relationship with you. And so if you baptize Americanism or Western thought in Christianity then that becomes a gospel that won't bring shame. But Paul says, 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Why is he not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? In a world full of God-haters, which you and I used to be, is there any hope? Is there any hope for God-haters to become God-lovers? For people who don't like being told you're doing it wrongly. If we really love them, we have to embrace this reality of the possibility of being shamed. And we have to love this true gospel message. And I think by the grace of God, we, we need to stand with Paul. And I will not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. For the sake of people, I will let them be offended and I will welcome shame personally. For the sake of souls, for the sake of our neighbors, for the sake of our friends, for the sake of our family, I will embrace the gospel message and shame can come if it will. If the world looks at me and mocks me, I do not care. If other Christians say you're taking too hard of a stance here on the gospel of Jesus and you're too hard on these people, telling them they need to repent and these sins are theirs and if they don't repent, they're going to be judged. You say, shame can come, but for the sake of their souls, I will not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. Why? Because something supernatural is happening in our world, and something supernatural has happened to you, and something supernatural can happen to God-haters. Something powerful for God-haters to become God-lovers. Something powerful, something supernatural, something non-material, even though Jesus had a material body, something non-material right now is going to have to come and do a work in the hearts and souls of people. You cannot find a soul in the human body, but that soul is there. And something supernatural is going to have to come and do something in the lives of people. And we're not ashamed of this gospel because this gospel is supernatural. And it can change people. It can turn the enemies of God into friends of God. God-haters into God's sons and daughters. Because the gospel for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes. This is why Paul's not ashamed of this gospel. This gospel that could be shame, he's not ashamed of because it is the very power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And here's the thing about the power of God. For God to create this world, it took a lot of power. For God to speak and make the Jack's Fork River in Missouri and all the bluffs that are there that I just saw. For the creativity of God to be on display to make really clear waters with rocks and pebbles without any mud to get stirred up, you can walk in it, and there's no mud like the Big Muddy River. The Big Muddy River is really clear. You can see about three millimeters down. The Jack's Fork River, you look down and see 15, 20 feet down, and it looks like you're two inches down. That's a lot of power to create out of nothing. But Paul's saying, you want to see something power? You want to see the very power of God? It's the gospel of Jesus. It's the power of God to save. Yes, the cosmos, that's powerful. But you want to see something really powerful? Dead people, people who hate God, people who don't like being told you've got to repent and believe in Jesus, people who don't like being told you can't save yourself. You want to see the power of God? God can make those people his sons and daughters. God's power on display. But we don't think about that too often. Because, again, I think we've adopted and baptized worldly principles. Because if we see the power of God every time we see somebody come to the faith, every time we see somebody baptized, or everybody, we, every single time we think about the fact that, again, we have been brought from death to life, God's power is on display here. His power is on display in our world, in our region. 
We need eyes to see it. God is at work. The very gospel the world hates is the gospel that saves the world. The very gospel the world hates is the very gospel that saves the world. The power of God unto salvation. To spare the offense is to damn their souls. To water down this message is to hate people. By definition, brothers and sisters, we have to have strong backbones. And God is giving that to you. We have to, in, in all the weak ways we may evangelize, we have to share the message. We have to risk Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners being really, really weird. This is our hope. This is the hope of the world. It's the gospel message. This gospel, the gospel of Jesus' substitutionary life, death, and resurrection is the only hope for a lost and dying world. And the message is more than a simple offer. The message of the gospel is that God has made, is not, the message of the gospel is not God has made his move. Now you make your move. The gospel powers itself. We don't make it powerful. The gospel powers itself. We don't make it powerful. As we teachers, we share the gospel. God is at work in the lives of people. It powers itself. We share it imperfectly. Nobody in here has ever shared the gospel perfectly or made it as beautiful in its presentation as it actually is. I have never, I'm barely scratching the surface of what it means to preach the gospel. The best sermon I've ever preached just barely scratches the surface. And God takes imperfect attempts and he works perfectly. We open our mouths and then we just stand it on in time. We see the work of God. It's like yeast, as Doug Wilson says, that moves through the loaf. The gospel of Jesus is spreading. And it may seem slow, but in time, we see God work. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Somebody said that. And as we teach the gospel, here's what we're going to go. And this is why we invite shame. Because as we share the gospel, and as we evangelize, and as we love people, and as we pray for people who don't know Jesus... Some people are going to shame you, and they're not going to like it, and it will harden them. That's not a message of love. That's a message of hate, they will say. The Equality Act that I've been talking about effectively outlaws a Christian sexual ethic. It was passed by the House, representatives, and it's going to the Senate. A Christian sexual ethic is, is going to be labeled as hate speech in our country if it goes through. Just a Christian in a biblical worldview on gender is going to be labeled as hate speech if that goes through. So just to say this is what God says about gender, okay, it's going to bring shame. But we will not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we not, will not be ashamed of his words. We will lean into what God has to say. In the same sun that melts the ice, hardens the clay. As we preach the gospel, we will invite suspicion from me-centered people who only want affirmation, who are seeking it out from everywhere. Just affirm me, affirm me, affirm me, and if you will not, I will say you are hating me. And we keep loving them by telling them to repent and turn to Jesus who loves them. 
We must not back down. We must not back down. We must not quit. The gospel is the only hope for a lost and dying world. We have been told, preach it to all the nations. Disciple the nations. And the Jesus who has all authority will work. It says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if you've been an atheist from birth. It doesn't matter if you claim to be a Christian and ran away and walked away. It doesn't matter if you currently actually hate God, not just secretly in your heart, but vocally. It doesn't matter if you're gay or if you're straight or if you're in any sort of screwed up way. If you will come to Christ, he will save you. The power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And the call that we go out with is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know God's power? You want to see him work? Non-believing world? Well, then believe this message. Believe in this Jesus who came for sinners. The power of God runs through the veins of everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. Anyone who believes. And I want us to see and notice the word everyone. This is not just for the Jew. He says it. It's for the Greek as well. The gospel is for the world. And it's the power of God for anyone in the world who would believe. Now, for the Apostle Paul and for the rest of the Bible... Uh, all the other authors in the Bible, when people begin to study election, which is the epicenter of God's grace, God has chosen to save a group of people before the foundation of the world. That's, that's clear in the Bible, and it's, it's almost impossible to neglect that or to say it otherwise. And as you read it, just the plain teaching of the Bible, uh, God's election of his bride is just so clear. And here's something else that's very, very clear. We saw it all through the Gospel of John. And here in this verse, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's John ch or Romans chapter 10. And to everyone who believes, or anyone who believes. And sometimes people who have an under, underdeveloped understanding of election, or an, it's an error in one way, where we read things like everyone and we get in theological knots of trying to understand how everyone and anyone, how this gospel call. Well, if God has chosen to save who he's going to save, how can it mean anyone? And here's how I know it, that God can figure this stuff out, because it says anyone or everyone. And if we're going to be fully biblical about evangelism and discipleship and proclaiming the gospel, as we get into Romans, we're going to get heavy into election later on. But I want us to see here from the beginning that it's not this theological enigma for the New Testament writers. Election is clear, and so is evangelism. And the call, if you'll believe, he'll have you. If anybody wants Jesus, they can have him. The Jew first and the Greek. To all who believe... There's the power of God on display. And to say anything less is to be unbiblical. And for those who reject the Bible's teaching on election, they want to look at verses like this and say, see, everyone, 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 everyone. And anytime we get into theological discourse, and we, we can do this over and over again in the, in the book of Romans, we want to say yes and yes where the Bible says yes and yes. And here's what we don't want to do. Well, this verse is opposed to this verse. No, it's not. Or this verse is opposed to this verse. No, it's not. They both go together. How? Who knows? But this verse and this verse both come out of the mouth of God. And so we agree with both. And here's what the Bible says. And this is the message to the world. Come to Jesus, everyone, Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or what gutter you're currently in. If you'll believe in Jesus, the power of God will be on display. God himself will be working in your very body supernaturally. And friends, that is really good news. 
That's why biblical theology is so much better than worldly philosophy is because the Bible brings us out of the mess and the haze of kind of having to say, well, I believe this or I believe this. And we just get to say, I believe what the Bible says here. And here's what the Bible says, that you come to Jesus and he'll have you. Believe in him and God's power will be at work in you. The gospel is for the world. Unequivocally, for everybody who's ever lived, we have a message to tell them. God loves you and if you'll repent and believe, he will have you. Trust in him. That's Paul, everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then then the Greek. I have a question, though, about what Paul's saying, the Jew first and then the Greek, because this is the first time that Paul specifically, even though he said earlier in in, uh, verse 13, he talked about how he has has obligation to the Gentiles, but he also has an obligation to the Greek and the barbarians, and then to the church in Rome, I mean, in Rome, And the church in Rome had Jews and Gentiles in it. So he did say that he wanted to preach the gospel to the church in Rome, which included Jews. But specifically here, he he mentions purposes of God in the Jewish people. And in chapter 11 of Romans, we get this as well. And so I think it is wise of us to at least consider a couple things about Paul's distinction here, that the gospel comes to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And the message of the gospel first, just geographically, was in Jerusalem. When Peter first preached, it was primarily to Jews. Even though there were people that were from other countries and other areas, and they heard them speaking as the Holy Spirit descended, and they were speaking in other tongues and languages, people heard them from wherever they came from. Primarily, the gospel message first came to Jerusalem. And in the letter to the Romans, we see a concern in chapter 9 of Paul for his countrymen. He loves his Jewish people, and he pleads with them to come to Christ. And he said, I'd be cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, the Jewish people. The people of God, to them belong the covenants, to them belong the prophets, to them belong the word of God. In Romans 11, we find that Israel has been hardened, that a partial Israel, partial hardening had come over Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. But I think what Paul is saying, even though in chapter 11 we see a partial hardening has come in, and we see this globally, that the Jewish people in large part to this day have rejected the Messiah, the true Messiah, Jesus. Still yet, there is a remnant of believing Jews. And what Paul says here is that the gospel of Jesus is for the Jew first. And I think for us, we need to consider, as we think about the world, we need to consider the Jewish people through the lenses of God's work, and we should see Israel just like every other nation, a people in need of the power of God and a people who can experience the power of God. And as we see Jewish populations throughout, there's a big Jewish population in Brooklyn and throughout this country and even into southern Illinois, we need to, just like any other race, don't write off Jewish people. Pray that Jesus would save them. Don't write them off as people who have been completely hardened and can't come to Christ because Paul says, to the Jew first, the gospel comes, and then to the Gentiles. We do expect that before Romans 11 seems to indicate there'll be an ingathering of the Jewish people who will come to Christ, we do expect until then that there will be some Jewish people who come to faith in Christ. And we see that all over the country there are Jew- and all over the world. Jews for Jesus organizations. There are Messianic Jewish people throughout the world who have recognized Jesus. And Paul introduces this here in the first chapter of Rome. And he's going to unpack that in chapter, chapter 9 and chapter 11. So we should see Israel just like any other nation, a people in need of the power of God through the gospel of Jesus. And then this 
This sermon closes in verse 17, the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. Everyone who believes, to the Jew verse and then the Greek, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Um, everyone in the world wants to be right. Married couples, when you get in an argument, or if you're single and you have friends, you get into a debate, do you want to be right or do you want to be wrong? Everybody wants to be right. Like when you're arguing with your kids over something and you kind of see like, like right at the beginning when you're like, okay, I don't argue with terrorists, okay? But, but you start to see like, wait a minute, I am being unreasonable here and actually my child is right about something. And you start kind of backpedaling. You don't like being wrong. Nobody likes being wrong. Everyone wants to be on the right side of history. You ever heard of that? The argument, the right side of history argument. It's happening like right now like crazy in TV. You want to be on the right side of history here. And that's being used in the LT, GT, L, that Q plus whatever movement. Everybody wants to be on the right side of history, they say. There is an argument virtually from everyone that there is a right and wrong way to do things. And we see on those on the radical left side of this world, we see that they believe in a right and wrong also. They just have a definition of what right and wrong is that's different than what God has. So there's virtual agreement with everybody, this desire of right and wrong and a desire to want to be right and in wanting other people to recognize that I'm right. Because typically when we're right in an argument, we want the other person to melt in tears and to agree, yes, you were right. We desire to be right. But what is true righteousness? Humanity wants to be right and even gloats in it when they are right. But what is true righteousness? What is it? The gospel of Jesus revealed and embraced through faith in the gospel. That is real righteousness. When we see the gospel, we acknowledge that God's right that his law is right and that we are wrong, that we have broken God's law. God's law shows us his righteousness and it shows us our wickedness and we see that God is right and he is holy. And this is all from faith. Um, God, God's law is good. And with the law and the gospel, we need to proclaim the law so we can proclaim the gospel God has said this is right and this is wrong. And as people who love the grace of God, we need to understand that we love the grace of God because we love the law of God. And if we don't understand the law of God, we cannot understand the grace of God. And if you don't understand the law of God, you cannot cry out to God as a sinner. People need to know the law of God, that God is right, that he is right. What he says goes. You cannot speak back to him and raise your fist and be right. He wins every time. Every time. And people need to know this. This is from faith and it's for faith. The righteousness of God seen in the gospel. We need to remember the righteousness of God and never forget it. When we forget God's righteousness, our faith is weakened. When we forget that in our life right now as believers that God is right. And I need to come to him. For every area of life, for everything I'm doing, I need to understand what God has to think about this. 
I need to hear from God and understand from God. I don't need to lean on my own understanding. Lean not on your own understanding. The righteousness from God that's revealed in the gospel of Jesus is for our faith. We see it from faith and for faith. His righteousness is for this life right now. God, what do you have to say? Now, what do we get when we forget God's righteousness? Okay, well, the first step when we forget God's righteousness, okay, God is right right now. The first step is always, did God really say? Did God really say? The echo of Eden is heard throughout this land. Did God really say? Is that really what God says? Right now in the area of gender in the church, there's a battle raging even in conservative circles. And the question rises to the surface from people who are questioning God's law about it. Did God really say that? Did God really say? The first step in the wrong direction is questioning God's word. The echo of Eden, it's heard everywhere. People, when people begin to question God's word in favor of, the, I'm going to pray and see what God says to me. God knows my heart. God loves me no matter what. Which ironically is true. But not in the way they're saying it. Instead of, what does God's righteousness have to do with this? What does God's law, what does God's opinion, what does his word have to say about this? Then people are stepping away from the righteousness of God. Many so-called Christians minimize God's word in favor of their own opinions to make, the, make it more palpable in our world today. Or a child goes off and walks in sin and the family member minimizes it for the sake of either relationship or their own heart. Well, did God really mean that? Because my son or daughter is genuine. My kids, I can tell, are really genuine and they're really trying to seek out the truth. And when things get personal... In your life, in the future, you're going to be bumping up to situations. You're going to be questioning, did God really say it? And I want you to hear this and remember it. God really said it. You can trust what God has to say in his word. Like go to his word, run, his, run to his word, memorize his word, getting on the Bible reading plan. This, the righteousness of God is from faith and it's for faith. Never forget the righteousness of God seen in the gospel of Jesus. The secret sauce to the Christian faith, as Andy Dwyer would say, is living day by day in awe of the righteousness of God and the gospel of Jesus and taking him at his word. Don't drink the humanism Kool-Aid. Don't drink the liberal Christian Kool-Aid. Take God at his word. Believe him. From the first spiritual breath you take to the last physical breath you take, take God at his word. He's always right. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you. The righteous, as the text says, the righteous shall live by faith. We live by faith, not in ourselves, but in you. This passage from Apachic is the passage that you used to change Martin Luther's life. And surely, as you would use somebody else if you didn't use him, God, you changed the world through this passage. The righteous shall live by faith. Not faith in our works, not faith in our word, not faith in our idea, not faith in our heart, not faith in our feelings, not faith in what we think about life, but faith in you and what you have to say. Faith in what you have done. Faith in the power of God and a salvation. And we, we will, by the grace of God, we don't want to be ashamed by the gospel of Jesus. And we know that the same sun that melts the heart, melts the ice, hardens the clay. And for us to stand on your word right now, today, is going to be harder 
right now in this stage of history, holding to your word, when there's going to be tensions in us, and as we're raising babies, and as they're friends, and as we're raising grandchildren, and all these things, the tension is going to be there. Did God really say? And God, I want us to be trained in this. The righteousness of God is for faith. That we would believe in Christ being for us right now, and we would believe his words, we would not be ashamed of them. Holy Spirit, lead, I trust that you will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.